Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In Washington, David Gura. Tom, thank you very much. Joined here by the mayor of Nashville, Tennessee. That is Megan Barry. She's here for a Smart Cities event at our Bloomberg government office. It's great to have you, thank you. with us. I'm going to moderate a panel with six mayors, so it's yeah. a pleasure to talk to you one-on-one. <laughs> we'll see how that we'll goes. See, yeah, good luck. <laughs> Help us with a, a definition, first of all. We talk about Smart Cities. What are we talking about? Well, you're talking about lots of different things. I mean, for us, it's about transit and uh, how you build in that smart technology in all the transit that you have going on. So we're really focused right now on just the basic things, like getting our signals timed. I mean, that makes a city smart. But it's the more comprehensive, visionary stuff like AV, uh, you know, automated vehicles, and, and those. How we're all going to get around cities in the future? How much of that is elective? In other words, is there a need for Nashville to move in this direction, or is it something you would like to see? Oh happen? no, we need to move. I mean, we are so far behind in transit. I mean, you walk around in New York and DC, and you see these incredible transit infrastructures. We don't have any of that, so we're we're really at the very beginning of building that infrastructure out. We've got bus systems, but we need light rail, we need uh, passenger uh, rail, we need a whole bunch of, of much more comprehensive infrastructure. How do you assess the appetite for that? You've got citizens who may want this, they're going to have to pay for at least uh, some of it. Right. How do you know what's a good investment? I'm from Chapel Hill, and there's been talk for a long time about building light rail between Chapel Hill, Durham, and Raleigh. Uh, it's uh. something that people maybe have their eye on, but then when they see the cost of it, they, they blanch a little bit. How do you pick the projects that are worthwhile for, for the citizens of Nashville? So what we look at is where are active riderships and where can we actually put transit down on the line. And I will tell you right now, with the growth of Nashville, 81 people a day are moving to Nashville. So you feel that crunch. Our, our roads just can't take the capacity anymore. So we've got to be more creative. And that's what being smart's all about. You're here in Washington, D.C. Yes, we're going we're gonna to do a panel. You're also going to be on, on Capitol Hill. What role do you see the federal government playing? We heard the president in a speech <coughs> to a joint session of Congress saying he wants a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, public-private partnerships, and the like. What role should the federal government be playing in doing that? Well, I hope that that's the case. I'd love to see that trillion dollars uh, make its way to Nashville. We'll take just a piece of it. Not, we don't even <laughs> Not need a big piece. Trillion, just, yeah. just a little, just yeah. a little piece. Um, I think the federal government has to be a, a critical partner, but I think that local municipalities can't wait anymore. Uh, um, I think that there used to be a time when the feds would say, hey, here's, our, here's a pot of money. I think now locals have to come and say, we've, we've got this. We've got some money to put in ourselves. Let's find a way to, to make this all happen together. How much of a challenge is getting private sector investment? into infrastructure projects. Is that something that you're looking at? Is it something that, what, what's the case that you make to investors to, to put money in toward Nashville? So as we begin those conversations about how we're going to fund our $6 billion transit plan, uh, P3s are critical. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that we are seeing other places where you've got private investment that wants to flow in. We are actually, my, my vernacular is a little different. We call them p- private public Okay, in that order. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because there's going to probably be a lot more private money in this than public. Still, still three Ps. Uh, three Ps, the, yes. Three Ps, but the, the order matters. The dialogue here is between you and other mayors uh, from around the country. How much of, of what you're doing uh, is pulling stuff that's tried and true in other places, bringing it to Nashville? How, how much are you looking for things that are replicatable? Uh, I, I, we're looking for anything. We don't think that we have to have pride of ownership. We're all about trying to find something that's already worked and, and taking it. And the good thing about local municipalities and mayors in particular is we want to share. So I was recently in Denver with the mayor of, of Mayor Hancock, mm-hmm. looking at their transit system and learning from what they've done. And, and the thing is, those that have come before, you can also learn from their mistakes. Yeah. So uh, we really want to share with each other, and I think that's really really you know, critical. You mentioned the degree to which Nashville uh, is growing. What's your vision for what that city looks like in 10, 20 years time? Uh, it's going to be bigger. It's going to be bigger. How, how's it going to be different just in terms of getting around or what's going to be there? Well, I mean, I think when you think about Nashville, one of our best pieces is that we are attracting incredible talent. We are attracting a diverse talent pool. And we want to be able to make sure that they want to stay and be able to get around really easily. And not having that 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 traffic uh, that you know, every day in, it's going to make a huge difference to their quality of life. I just ask you about legacy. I was talking with Tom, my co-host, a little while back. The mayor in Bedford's going to be here. You think yeah. of Bedford, you think of fishing, you think of Nashville, you think of music. As you look at the future of the city, 
How do you deal with that legacy, being associated with something but wanting the city to stand for something more? Have other industry come in, for example? Well, you know, music is a huge part of what Nashville, music, you know, yeah. Our, yeah, our our economy, but we're also a huge healthcare capital. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot of, we, one of the things that made us actually very strong through the recession was that we have a very diverse economic uh, engine. So, we, we, you know, continuing to grow that, making sure we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket, but at the same time, music is what makes us special. Yeah. And you sure, you never want to lose that. Let me ask you lastly here, we've got about 30 seconds left, how you assess what works. So you invest in something, you try something different. How much time do you give that? How much do you, how do you look at the data and see what's working and what's not? Well, first of all, you actually said the key word, which is data. Yeah. I mean, I think in the past we've just thrown things down and said, let's just cross our fingers. Now we actually have taken a, a long time to study and, and find out where the ridership is, especially for these mass transit projects, and we've got the data. So it, we're at least starting a little bit ahead. Now the success will be if people ride it. Megan Berry, thank you very much uh, for joining us here uh, at the Bloomberg Smart Cities event. That gets started in just a little, way, a little while here. Uh, the mayor of Nashville joining me. David Gura here in Washington, uh, as you said, with uh, Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty. She's a congresswoman from the 5th District uh, in Connecticut. We were just talking with the mayor of Nashville about her ambitions for making Nashville a, a smart city, and she talked a little bit about the degree to which she's relying on the federal government to help her uh, in those efforts. You're on Capitol Hill, uh, where there has been talk of infrastructure spending, a new infrastructure package. Where do things stand? Just give us the state of play at this point. Suffice to say, it's a busy agenda on Capitol Hill it's at this a, point. It's a busy agenda, and uh, you know, this is an area where there's enormous interest in bipartisan support. There isn't a district, a congressional district in America. There isn't a state that isn't in need of infrastructure, whether it's new infrastructure for growing cities. You take some, I know you'll be talking to the mayor, yes, Charlotte, yes. soon, or the industrial northeast where where I live, which I represent, Waterbury, Connecticut, and areas like that, or the industrial Midwest, we all need infrastructure. And so that should provide the pressure. The challenge uh, that we're facing is how do we finance it? And that's really what we're looking at right now. Uh, lots of different proposals. The president's put a trillion dollar price tag, so has Chuck Schumer. Um, in the House, we've got, I would say, more actionable plans that we put forward and we're going to now try to move them forward. You know, we talk about tax reform, and the, the blueprint from which we're working is this, uh, is this Ryan Brady blueprint. Is there something similar for infrastructure spending at this point? In other words, you have people making proposals, but is there a piece of legislation, no matter how uh, inchoate, fr from which lawmakers are working at this point, or are we not there yet? We're not really there yet, although there are a couple of different proposals. Most folks think we're likely to see some form of repatriation of overseas profits, um, of which we're looking at trillions of dollars, which could provide the corpus from which we could then uh, you know, do a major infrastructure bank, for example. Um, that needs to be part of the deal. But as you can imagine... Other people have designs yes. on that money, too. <laughs> um, and so I don't think Chairman Brady is, uh, nor Speaker Ryan, my workout buddy, Speaker Ryan, are quite yet uh, ready to agree to that. So, so that's basically what we've got the order we have. We have first coming health care to free up money for tax reform. Yeah. And only then are we going to get to infrastructure. So that's really the hang-up right now is, is that ordering is making it hard for us to come to an agreed-upon deal. Here with Congressman Esty at the Bloomberg Smart Cities event, and uh, it's a casual freewheeling space. The uh, mayor of Columbus has just shown up. Andrew Ginther joins us here uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance. Talking about the role that the federal government might play. Your city was a, a bona fide smart city, uh, granted a, a lot of money by the federal government uh, as part of a competition. Uh, how has that money helped you move your city forward? Uh, what, what, what sort of work did that competition do to get you to where you want to be? Uh, well, we're working on it. You're we're working not on there it. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just uh, awarded a year ago and uh, very pleased with the way the community has responded. We started with a $40 million award from DOT, $10 million from Vulcan. Uh, at the time we were awarded, we had about $90 million of local match, public, private uh, entities locally that were matched up into this acceleration fund. And now we're at $367 million total, and we've just set a, a goal of a billion dollars by 2020. So what you're really starting to see is some of the pilots that we had in uh, place for our proposal uh, really hitting the ground in neighborhoods like Linden, one of our neighborhoods with highest levels of incarceration, infant mortality, unemployment, and poverty, uh, to really start to open up 
more uh, modes of safe, reliable transportation to jobs, affordable, high-quality child care, job training, workforce development. Uh, that's what this is all about. I, I really believe that mobility is the great equalizer of the 21st century, and that's why it's so important. So to have allies with vision like Congresswoman here and, and others, uh, we're spending some time here in Washington talking about what we're doing with Smart Columbus and ask for continued commitment and investment uh, into intelligent transportation for the future. Congressman Nessie, how much of a dialogue is there uh, between the federal government and the local government? How could you do more to understand what's working and what's not here in Washington? Well, I do a great deal with my own districts. And, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Neil O'Leary, who is mayor of Waterbury, is very involved in the smart cities. They've applied for a smart cities grant. And I couldn't agree uh, more with the mayor here about we really do need to have mobility. And sometimes this gets hung up about, is it jobs, shovel-ready jobs right now? But it's jobs into the future. It's jobs right now and into the future. So I look at challenges we have, for example, with access to community colleges. Mm. Well, that is dependent on having a bus service. The folks who use community college need night buses. Mm -hmm. And we've had struggles over that. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about things like the Smart Cities Projects. Cities are places, and having represented a local yeah. community, the rubber hits the road. You've got to fix the pothole. You have to l deliver services. You can't be an ideologue. Nobody cares what letters after your name sure. if you're a mayor. Are sure. you getting the job done? And I know that from my time doing that. That's why I want to see these laboratories, not just to the states, yeah. but the laboratories of the cities, which level. where more people are living more and more in our cities, let them use these projects, show what works, and then we do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Congressman Nessie, thank you very much. Uh, thanks to you, uh, Mayor Githner, as well. I'm going to be on stage in just a little while. Let you guys get breakfast first before I <laughs> tackle some panels on stage. I'm here at the Bloomberg Government Smart Cities event in Washington, D.C. Too short a visit with, uh, with these two. I just want to get the statehood question out of the way. And, and Charlie, being from New York, had no idea. So I'm going to let you explain that. Sure. So we uh, have uh, been on a, a quest to make D.C. equal to every other state in America, and actually Washingtonians, who are taxpayers, uh, equal to every other American. And that's what we've been focused on in the district. Uh, we are a, a city, county, and state all at once, except we have no vote in the Congress of the United States. The only capital in the world where its citizens uh, don't have representatives in, uh, in the Congress. Uh, so we have presented a bill to the Congress to change that. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, uh, over 80% of Washingtonians voted to become the 51st state, uh, and the Congress can make this change by a simple vote. A large percentage of D.C. residents also voted for Hillary Clinton to be president, and Donald Trump is our president. Uh, historically, D.C. does not fare as well for local control under Republican administration. So given this, is D.C. statehood right now a pipe dream? Well, actually, that's not the case. Uh, in the district, our congresswoman and leaders of the District of Columbia have worked with Republicans and Democrats alike uh, to advance issues that help Washingtonians. Uh, we have had Republicans, including the vice president of the United States, uh, Mike Pence vote uh, to have Washingtonians to have a vote in the Congress, to have a, a delegate have a vote. Uh, so for us, this is not a Republican or Democratic issue. Uh, it's an issue of that's very central to our American democracy. If you pay taxes, uh, you get a vote uh, in representation in the, in the Congress. Now, you were here because of smart cities yes. and to talk about infrastructure. Um, I wanted to get an idea about the, particularly when you think about Metro and all of the problems that it's have had of late. What are some of the best practices that you're able to take away from this and to present to this conference? Uh, well, it's, I always like to be with other mayors to see uh, what, what they're working on. We had a great conversation about how USDOT can be involved. There's a discussion about um, the need for the reauthorization of a federal transportation uh, Act, which we're very focused on as well. Uh, in the district, of course, we function as city, county, and state, so we have all of those roles, and we work with the region, with Maryland and Virginia, uh, because we're metro funders. Uh, so we'd like to see a big uh, move uh, that President promised for a big infrastructure bill, and hopefully the money to go with it, to make the necessary investments, because we have them too. We have them in transit, we have them in road.
roads and we have them at bridges. You and Amy both make the point that this is a cross-state issue. In terms of being a smart city as D.C., what are the, some of the challenges in working with your neighbors to make sure that you're all pursuing these goals mutually? Well, I think that the, the biggest issue that we have is, is Metro um, because it is by a compact operated by Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, except when it was created um, more than 40 years ago now, there was not a regional funding mechanism put in place. And there's no other transit system like ours in the United States um, that doesn't, uh, all of those systems uh, have a dedicated funding source. And that's what uh, we're, we're very focused on. Other parts of infrastructure could include anything from cyber to uh, handling uh, the homeless. Uh, what are some of the big initiatives that's facing D.C. right now? Well, housing. We include housing certainly in uh, all of our infrastructure ask. Um, the federal government has a role. They have some public housing in Washington. Um, but we are also making a $100 million investment in our housing production trust fund each and every year. Uh, and that puts us in tops across the country in the amount that we're investing in affordable housing. We are particularly concerned about uh, some housing that have affordability covenants now um, that will expire over the next several years. So part of our efforts are around preservation of those 8,000 units. One of the issues that a lot of mayors are struggling with where you have had medical or recreational marijuana initiatives is federal, state, city, jurisdiction. How is D.C.'s marijuana recreational marijuana use allowance faring under the Jeff Sessions Justice Department? Well, we uh, per se don't have uh, legalization of recreational marijuana, um, and it's just confusing. So let me explain. Uh, first of all, we do have a medical marijuana regime that's been in place for a, a number of years, which I understand people are also questioning the use of medical marijuana. A couple of years ago, uh, our voters approved a measure to allow for the use of marijuana uh, by adults um, in the possession of marijuana in their private homes. For recreational use? Yes, for non-medical use. Part of your function. What's different, though, and the Go reason ahead. why I, I point this out is in states where marijuana is legalized, uh, they have the, a, a regime that allows for the growing and procurement and sale of marijuana. That's not the case in the district. So how does that, f how does that mesh with the federal government's position? Well, Which is marijuana to get is illegal, uh, according to it. It is part of the, um, I forget the, the word that they use, but the medical use of marijuana is not approved on the federal schedule. So any, uh, any marijuana regime, where, whether it's medical or recreational, if there's a change in federal policy to enforce those crimes, it will have an effect on any state that has a medical or recreational program. As we are talking about the smart cities and the infrastructure, how fast is D.C. growing and where do you see the district in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, we grow about 900 people per month. Um, we've been on that pace for, I think, the last five years. Is that sustainable? Uh, yes, it is, um, but we have to make a lot of investments in transportation and housing. Um, where the biggest pinch that we have is on housing, uh, and we're starting to see it in other, uh, in other things that people need associated with housing, like child care. And who are those 900 people? How are the demographics of the city changing? Um, well, they've changed. Uh, I think that the probably the biggest change is that they're very young. Uh, you yes. heard one of the, the mayors say a little bit earlier that her city is uh, half of the people that uh, her city um, grows by are millennials. I will say it's much significantly higher for, for D.C., uh, that most of the people moving here are under the age of 35. Um, we are also seeing people who are downsizing that are moving from the suburbs uh, to the district. Uh, Mayor, I know that your time is short. I know we have to let you go. Um, I just want to talk to you about priorities. How do you prioritize and how do you figure out how to pay for it as you get into the infrastructure of the nation's capital? Well, we've actually, I'm just going to talk to you about one new effort we have, and that's around, uh, of course, we're making the necessary investments in Metro, and we're seeking to get a dedicated funding source, and we're encouraging our neighbors in Maryland and Virginia to join us. Um, but we're also doing some back-to-the-basics things in our city when it comes to infrastructure. Uh, I, am, I have a, a state of good repair plan in my current budget for all residential streets in D.C. Uh, we do pretty well on our main arterials. Uh, only 
97% of them are in poor condition, but that number goes up to 30% when you're talking about residential streets. So I have a five-year plan to get rid of poorly rated roads uh, in, in the district, and, and that's very important. Uh, we're also very focused on, uh, as you've heard, on making our city more resilient when it comes to, to flooding and the like. So I would say transportation and housing are a top two infrastructure issues. So, Mayor Roberts, we're at the Smart Cities meeting. Um, you hear about smart this and smart that all the time. Uh, how do you use data and transparency, which are themes of this conference, to create a smart city? Well, you can have data usage in many different areas of what cities worry about and, and what they focus on every day. Um, what we've really looked at in Charlotte is how do we use data to make sure that we're serving everyone, that we're being equitable in our infrastructure, and that we're connecting people um, to jobs, to health care, to even healthy food as part of um, the inequalities we see in our communities. And so when you have data where you know where people are working, um, where they're living, which bus routes connect them? Do those bus routes work? Do those transit connections work? How do the roadways work? When you have that accurate data, you can make sure that not just is the government operating efficiently, but also individual uh, folks who are just living their lives uh, in your community are operating efficiently as well. And that helps with the quality of life. It also helps um, to eliminate some of the disparities in income and access, uh, other challenges that rapidly growing cities face all across America. And, and when you're talking about transit infrastructure in particular, I know you were specifically speaking about bus routes. Um, are there other issues, transit infrastructure issues, or possibilities that Charlotte's looking toward? And what are your priorities? And how will you pay for them? That's all packed in one package right there. And I only get three minutes to answer that. <laughs> as long as you want. Well, um, the funding is a challenge. And I think what we, we look at, we have a very successful light rail. Um, that we're extending to our university, which is great because it will connect UNC Charlotte to our downtown. Um, we have, that's going to be 10 miles, added to the 10 miles already there. We have a streetcar system. And we have three more lines that are under study that we know where those quarters are going to be. But that uh, additional total is going to be about $6 billion. Wow. And right now we don't have funding in place. We're waiting to hear from the federal government to whether they're going to continue the Tiger program and other things that we have used successfully uh, to start that, that uh, light rail system that we have going. And what we find is it's not just uh, about transportation, it's also about land use. And it's about how you grow your city and how you plan your city so that when you can put density along those corridors, you're much more efficient at getting people to work, getting people to the doctor, etc. And also leaving room for some open space for those big parks and those greenways and things that you need to help that balance and that quality of life and to help your environment. And so, so funding is a key part of that. Uh, but we're also looking at the range of options because we know that half the folks moving to Charlotte every day are under age 35. We know they don't like cars. <laughs> so I've heard them in many forums and <laughs> community meetings. They want a bike, they want to go transit, they want to Uber. So we want to make sure that we're expanding our bike paths. We want to make sure that we're doing mixed-use mixed, uh, mixed use development so they can actually walk a lot of places. We see a lot of folks walking to breweries. We have That's another you know big booming industry in Charlotte, the microbreweries. Really? Absolutely. We have like 21 of them within a mile of uptown. <laughs> it's incredible. And people want to walk to those. They don't, they don't want to have to worry about driving after that. So they also want to have the social life that goes with that and um, people being out. We have this whole group of, of cyclists who meet on every Tuesday night. There are like 100 of them and they just take the streets over and they have these routes that are in neighborhoods and they have their lights on and they have a great big social thing out of it. And so it's about looking at a full range of, of cycling, walking safely, um, making sure that traffic is routed the right way to make safe crossings, etc., and having a bus and transit system that overlays that, that helps connect people, and again, reduces those transportation costs, as well as helping the environment. Uh, one issue involving your city that, of course, has had a lot of national attention is HB2, which is known as the bathroom bill in shorthand. Um, you're in a tough re-election fight right now, and, and that's become part of the campaign. Um, there is a constituency in Charlotte and North Carolina that had concerns about what the Human Rights Commission had recommended originally for your policy. Is there a way that that 
your original provision, which the bathroom bill was meant to combat, could have been rolled out to get greater, broader support and not prompted the state legislature to intervene? First of all, I have to correct anyone who calls it uh, what you just called it. It was a bill about discrimination or non-discrimination. It so, is what it is commonly known as. Exactly. But what it was, but the challenge is that people really think that was all it was about. And what it was about was Charlotte standing up to say, we don't believe discrimination against the LGBT community is right. And that we believe in public accommodations. You should have some ability to take a complaint to a local committee if you find you're discriminated against. Um, we want our restaurants, our hotels, and our taxis to be inclusive, and by and large they are, but there are still isolated incidents of discrimination. So it was really all about non-discrimination for the LGBT community. Um, the word bathroom was never in our original ordinance. It was in HB2. So I always want to correct folks on that. Uh, and in terms of could we work better with the state, um, we had a whole year of campaigns based around, um, because this was a vote that happened three times uh, in the city of Charlotte, so it, it was or two votes a year before I got elected mayor. And again, open, public, legislature knew about it. We had a whole year of campaigning, legislature knew about it, and we did not hear anything in looking at the 200 other cities across America that have non-discrimination ordinances, including Columbia, South Carolina, our neighbors to the south, um, Myrtle Beach, Atlanta, et cetera, many cities we compete with. We didn't hear anything from the legislature during that whole year about any retribution, any backlash that would happen. And so it was unexpected. And I think um, we did what we could in terms of projecting what we were going to do, talking about being an uh, inclusive city. We will continue to um, express those values in Charlotte. We were very successful in still getting um, conventions and businesses, et cetera, coming to Charlotte because they knew that Charlotte was the city that stood up. Uh, and said, we do not believe in discrimination. And so we had over 11,000 new jobs created in Charlotte, over 1,000 companies expanded or came to Charlotte in 2016 in spite of what the state did. And so we continue to express those values. We continue to talk about all the great things Charlotte has and all the ways that we do include and welcome folks. Um, We are an incredibly diverse city, and we will continue to um, be that. Uh, We're working very closely with the private sector to do what we can within the constraints of what our state uh, legislation has um, prohibited us from doing. But they did not uh, monitor the private sector in that. So we are working very closely with them. We've always been a collaborative city. And we're going to continue to thrive and prosper based on being equal, inclusive, fostering innovation, celebrating creativity. Let's take that a step further and and expand it out to Capitol Hill and to the federal government and the relationship between the municipalities, Charlotte specifically, and the federal government. Um, That's why you're here. You're in the capital. You're in the nation's capital. You're going to be on Capitol Hill soon. What is that relationship like and, and what role can the federal government play when it comes to Charlotte being a smart city, improving infrastructure and some of the other issues that you've brought up? We actually have worked um, pretty well with our congressional delegation uh, around a number of things. And one of the things that we're trying to get is a Doppler weather radar, which we don't have in Charlotte. Um, I think we're the largest, I know, we're the largest municipality that doesn't have one that we we use South Carolina. Uh, And Robert Pittenger, who's a Republican congressman um, from our area, uh, has helped to uh, champion that. So uh, we look at uh, energy infrastructure and the things we've done um, around uh, alternative energy around um, uh, energy conservation, et cetera. We've worked closely with Senator Burr on that. Uh, there are many things that um, we have actually had success with our federal government. What we're interested in, specifically around infrastructure, is to continue some of the programs that have been so successful, like the Tiger Grants, um, so much that has supported transportation infrastructure. You know, we are a sort of non traditional transit city. Um, you know, unlike the older cities that have had transit for years, Charlotte was one of the first ones that wasn't a coastal city and wasn't one of the you know top ten that had a very successful light rail develop uh, development, and that was really based on the the portion the federal government was was able to fund, uh, and that has spurred incredible private sector development. It has really been um, the the leverage that we've used to get that collaboration to really grow our city in a smart way, in a way that's more effective and efficient 
and provides opportunity to more people. And so that's really where we're looking to the federal government is to continue some of those successful programs that we have proven are successful, that we can point to the dollars that we saved and the dollars we've generated based on that investment. I wanted to ask a little bit about um, what reaction you would have to the Supreme Court's decision not to listen to the appeal to the lower court voter ID ruling last fall. That The plan that had been approved was t- called by the lower court an almost surgical precision attempt to disenfranchise African-American voters. Looks like um, that law is not going to come back for the time being. How is that affecting voters in Charlotte? That has a tremendous impact, and I have to say I was glad to see the Supreme Court's decision, and I uh, actually looked very closely at that voter ID bill when it was first um, passed at our state, and I looked at um, where they made it harder for African Americans to vote and where there were districts that were packed, and that also, um, we're, you know, our districts are uh, unconstitutional, and so they are required to redraw our state legislative districts um, before next year's elections. They had to redraw the congressional districts as well. But if you look at the forms of ID and they, they found uh, the conversation that went on, uh, they targeted forms of ID that African Americans don't have in the same proportion as, as um, white folks have. And that um, is distressing to people who want to have a voice in their government and who have also unfortunately seen decades of discrimination and uh, earlier attempts to disenfranchise whole segments of our population. We are all about making sure everyone in Charlotte has a voice, that everyone feels empowered. Uh, we welcome citizen input all the time. We have a budgeting process where we put our budget online. We uh, ask citizens to go in and show us what you would add or subtract. You know, How do you think it impacts your neighborhood? Tell us what you feel. We have town hall meetings all over our city with all of our 11 um, district representatives on the city council. And and I'm going to have one in June. We want people to feel like they are part of their future. And when you have a bill that is disenfranchising whole segments, that is not helpful. So um, we're glad to see the Supreme Court cares about that aspect of democracy. Wanted to ask also about um, housing, part of the infrastructure issue. We talked a little bit with D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser about the issue of homelessness in the city, and she says that's a big part of her infrastructure plan. Is that a problem in Charlotte, and does that dovetail at all with the concept of a sanctuary city? I'm not sure if Charlotte is a sanctuary city at all. Okay, two separate issues. Okay. So housing... We can tease those apart completely. Very good. So housing and affordable housing is a huge challenge okay. because our rents are rising faster than wages. Uh, as our city grows, obviously, property that's close in, that has a lower, uh, lesser commute, becomes much more valuable. And so what we are struggling with is about 34,000 units that we are short of affordable housing. And this is for our hourly workers, it's for our hotel workers, for our teachers, for our police officers, uh, folks who are, you know, middle class but, um, but in the lower level of that, uh, that income bracket and really trying to find a place that they can afford to live that's not 30 miles uh, outside of the city. And so we are working very hard to increase the amount of money that we put into subsidized housing. Um, Actually, we advocated to keep the community development block grants that are federal grants that we've used for housing projects. And so whether it is new housing, whether it is renovating existing homes so seniors can stay in their homes and not get gentrified out of their neighborhood um, so they can do those essential repairs, et cetera, we advocated to keep those, and they're in the current budget. We hope they're in uh, fiscal year 18 as well. Um, so that's something where the federal government has been, been very helpful in our housing situation. One of the challenges we have is that we are not allowed to require a new construction, a certain percentage to be affordable. So even though we're doing more mixed-income housing, it's voluntary. We encourage it. We try to work with developers to do it. Um, we try to um, show how it benefits everyone. Uh, But again, we have to help subsidize with public money to really get it to happen at the speed that we need. So that's a challenge. Housing continues to be a challenge, but we've we've got some great projects underway. On the sanctuary city issue, that is an immigration issue, and that is really um, cities that are trying to um, not defy federal uh, law, but to limit uh, federal reach in terms of their communities in deportations. We are not a sanctuary city. Uh, We are a welcoming city. We have many immigrants, but we also have a 287G program, which is uh, a federal program that allows uh, local sheriff's deputies to actually um, start deportation proceedings uh, for folks. Now, they only 
encounter that program if they are arrested for some kind of offense. And so it is really targeting violent criminals. Sometimes we're concerned that it's not necessarily targeting violent criminals. Um, we don't want it used for traffic incidents, that sort of thing. Um, but we do want to be a city that supports immigrants. We have an immigrant integration task force. It's looking at how do we support immigrant small business? How do we help more legal residents become citizens? Uh, that's something that we're uh, actively working with some nonprofits to, to encourage because then you have the full rights and privileges of citizenship. Uh, and sometimes the, the housing and the immigrant uh, issue do overlap when immigrants are part of that, um, that lower income or hourly workforce that has a hard time finding housing. Uh, but they're really two separate issues. Yeah. My final question for you, uh, Mayor Roberts, uh, deals with some of the divisions that we see in politics today. If you are looking at North Carolina from a national stage, you see cities like Charlotte that are heavily Democratic, college towns, of course, your Raleigh-Durham's, those tend to be blue, and then there's these seas of deep red all over the state. Now, in North Carolina, that combines to make the whole thing pretty purple, pretty competitive, and I'm sure you'll have no shortage of presidential attention in 2020. But in the meantime, as the mayor of a major city, City. Is there something you can do um, within your own state, your own region, to sort of bridge some of these political divides that we see between demographic groups, urban, rural, the divisions we see in politics today? Well, the first thing to remember is that um, we have gerrymandering that, again, has been declared unconstitutional in our state. And so the first thing I'm doing is advocating very strongly for an independent redistricting commission. And there are actually bills in the House and Senate that would support that, but they haven't gotten out of committee. Um, we're hoping that that is going to change before 2020, the next census. But that is uh, a challenge because what we find is that even though we're very purple, um, the state as a whole is about 50-50 in terms of registrations. We have 10 Republican and three Democratic congressional representatives. So, and that is also mirrored in our state House and Senate. It's a veto-proof majority. So what we find is that redistricting with an independent commission would help restore balance. So that's one of the first things I'm doing. But the second thing I want to do is help bridge the rural-urban divide. And what we find is a lot of the legislatures now and conservative areas are from rural districts. We want them to prosper, too. We want to make sure that our city is connecting to those rural areas around us. And we have a whole farm-to-fork movement so that we have fancy restaurants in Charlotte that, that pick local farms and highlight them and talk about them on their menu and really help them survive and help them be um, publicized as part of supporting uh, that rural area that is just outside our borders. We have um, farmers markets that do the same thing. We have um, some tourist attractions in surrounding areas that are in rural areas where a lot of people from Charlotte go and spend money and spend time. We want to continue to build and looking at ourselves as a region and look at economic development as a region. And so even if there's a, a large company that wants to create a new factory or a new um, manufacturing facility, we want them to look regionally. And there's a whole regional partnership that markets us that way. Because sometimes they don't fit in a very densely developed Charlotte, but they might fit across the border. And we know, again, they're going to live, they're going to shop, they're going to entertain in Charlotte everybody's going to benefit. So we want to continue to do that. One thing I did recently is we have a regional coalition of mayors, um, some very small towns along with Charlotte and some bigger towns. I gave them all a tour of our airport. It's a regional facility. They got the behind-the-scenes tour of all the construction and the growth that we have at our airport, and they saw how things worked, and that helped them feel like this is part of their growth. It's an asset they use all the time. We want them to feel included. We are at the Bloomberg Smart Cities meeting with many mayors, including Mayor John Mitchell of New Bedford, Massachusetts, the state's sixth largest city, part of the Providence metropolitan statistical area, but definitely a place with its own spirit and soul. Uh, you come from a longtime fishing family. Uh, I do. I do, as a matter of fact. Yes, uh, my parents were public school teachers, but my uh, family, especially on my father's side, was in the commercial fishing industry, which is a big thing in New Bedford. We're the largest commercial fishing port in America, and uh, and and are growing in terms of market share. Most of a lot of the fishing industry on the East Coast is actually gravitating toward New Bedford, um, and uh, so it's a big big part of not only our regional economy but also a big part of our culture. 
You also have a large manufacturing presence, and you're here learning about smart cities and infrastructure issues. As you are trying to harness big data and information toward improving your city, how does that interface with some of the workforce challenges you have in an inevitably transitioning economy? Yeah, so it, it, things are complex right now, and, and you know we're in a sort of a, a unique situation, at least for us, in the sense that um, our unemployment rate has dropped precipitously, labor participation has gone up, but we still have sort of a, a pesky cohort of folks who uh, are remain outside the, the, the labor market. And uh, the lament of most employers these days is, I, I've, you know, I am hiring up, I've got help wanted signs, which is a rare sight in New Bedford historically, but I can't find the people who have the basic, basic math and uh, English skills and more importantly soft skills to, to do the, the job so so you know what we're trying to do is uh, to, to deal with that is among other things to enhance our transportation infrastructure we want we we believe that our, our as other mayors do that uh, that uh, facilitating the ability of people to go from home to their place of employment yeah, it makes us more competitive. I'm sort of to state the obvious, but you know what we've tried to do is is integrate smart cities technology, sensors, and and other data gathering measures uh, into our transportation system to allow us to figure out where people are living, where uh, you know where migration patterns are are heading, and and where the employment growth is so that we can adjust on the fly. Data with context is knowledge. When you are able to apply that knowledge, then you can move on to the next step. What would the next step be, and does the federal government or maybe the private sector have a role in that? Well, the private sector, I think, does have a role in helping identify their needs. And and, uh, and so I think these days, just given um, the the back of, uh, apparent backing off of the federal government from uh, from the life of the cities in, in this country, at least that's I think what we should assume until until it's proven otherwise, and the continuing resource constraints at the local level, you know more has to be expected of the private sector. Uh, so not only in the way of identifying needs, but also uh, ponying up funding to uh, to to uh, actually activate projects that might be in the public good, whether they are in our case port facilities or whether they are. Um, surface transportation projects whatever it is but you know what we try to do is work hand in glove with business so that you know we have a sense of where their needs are hard not just presently but you know, a year from now five years from now and so forth your city has the highest bond rating ever in its history which is saying something when it starts in the 17th century um how does smart city <laughs> innovation play into that yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think S and P was around back then, so it might not be a, a, a valid marker. But but in any event, uh, you know what we we are, even though we're 2017 and not 2008 anymore, we still manage city government with a uh, a an air of austerity, as though it were 2008, in the sense that we're not parsimonious about every last penny. We do we, we do look for opportunities to invest. But we've got to get more efficient all the time because we still are resource constrained. Um, so we, we've we have championed a number of efficiency initiatives that have freed up capital, uh, public capital, to uh, invest in critical infrastructure, whether it's broadband, whether it's port facilities, and so forth. And we do that by um, you know by by being more data driven. When I got into office, uh, there was nothing in the way of a performance management mechanism in city government and uh, we we have one now we measure all the things that i think at least for now that are relevant to our continuing to deliver important services but also to save taxpayer dollars uh and and we've also seized opportunities for uh in in certain discrete areas energy is a good example where we've been very aggressive in building out our solar capacity according to the wall street journal we have uh, more installed municipal solar capacity than any, any city in the United States, actually in the continental United States. Uh, Honolulu has, uh, we're told, more installed capacity per capita, but obviously Honolulu has a slight uh, advantage, advantage when it comes to sun. So, yeah. so, uh, but but anyway, it's just one example of the kinds of uh, the kinds of energy, uh, the kinds of initiatives that we we're, we've been aggressively pursuing because. You know, when you step back and think about our position, New Bedford's a city of 100,000. Uh, it's an older industrial city. 
And even though we've, we've seen a lot of growth of late, we're one of these places that historically has lag behind the business cycle, right? We're, one of the, we're usually late to emerge from a recession and quick to go back into the next one. And what I'm trying to do is to make the right kinds of adjustments along the way and the right kinds of investments that allow us to flatten that out and, and remain on a, on, a, on a steadier growth uh, trajectory. Being in an event like this one uh, with the Smart Cities event and the other mayors uh, in the nation's capital and the other things that you guys are going to be doing today, do you find that you are providing some best practices to other mayors or you're able to take away best practices from them? And I ask that because everybody else has been talking about uh, housing and infrastructure as far as uh, transportation. You're the first one I've talked to has talked about solar energy and renewable energy. Yeah, so we we try to... um through organizations like the U.S. Conference of Mayors and others try to share ideas. And I, I think there is, you know, there is this, there's this mindset that I think has taken hold among the nation's mayors that is uh, all about self-sufficiency and not, you know, waiting for the federal government to initiate something new, whether it's in investment, whether it's new social programs, because I, I think there is at some among most mayors, some level of skepticism that the federal government's actually going to deliver, and I think that skepticism is probably pretty well founded. Um, and and so, what we've done, and, and certainly I do this in my city, is try to preach uh, an ethic of, of self sufficiency. We're going to you know, determine our own fate, and yeah, we might need to have a good partnership with the state and, f- and federal government, but but at the end of the day. Uh, it's a it's a partnership, but we're we're driving the action. You were talking about 2008. Would like to take a moment to talk about 2007. Uh, March was the 10-year anniversary of the immigration raid that netted 361 textile workers and the people who hired them. Um, how did that change the city, and what did it learn from the experience? Yeah, so uh, that was the the so-called uh, Michael Bianco raid, uh, which uh, Michael Bianco was a factory in the south end of our city that made. Uh, rucksacks for uh, for the Department of Defense, and uh, it employed a large number of undocumented workers. The ICE went in, and as part in connection with a criminal investigation of the employers uh, of the of the uh, the bosses, as it were, um, uh, rounded up a, a very large number of of the workers who, who didn't have immigration status. And it was a it was a shock, I think, not only to the city um, for I think obvious reasons, sort of the disruption in folks in the lives of not only the workers but their families, including the school children, was was something that people don't forget. But I think it also, at least through uh, the end of the Bush administration and the Obama administration, changed the way that immigration um, uh, law is enforced in this country. Uh, there, that was perhaps the last of the large immigration raids in the country until whatever happens next now. And I think, so we, we do continue to have a large undocumented worker population, uh, especially in our fish houses. Not only are, they, are we the largest commercial fishing port, we're also the lar- we also have the largest fish processing base in the country. And, and our fish processors um, do employ a number of um, undocumented workers. So there are a lot of folks who are on on edge about what might happen next. Will there be a return to Michael Bianco style enforcement? And so, you know, what we've tried to do, um, you know, we are not a sanctuary city because I think we've taken, I've taken the position that because that term is undefined in federal law and because there's no sort of settled definition that uh, by by taking a hard position, we're only inflaming uh, the division uh, that we're seeing in lots of cities around the country. And, you know, frankly, as a, as a leader of my city, I don't want that to be a distraction to all, to all the hard work we're doing. All that said, we, we take pains to help folks in our community know what their legal rights are. Uh, we take pains to remind folks of what a welcoming city New Bedford is and we're a place that has been traditionally hospitable to, uh, to, to new immigrants wherever they're from and we'll con- that will continue to approach it that way. Then we've looked at 2008, we've looked at 2007. Let's look at 2027. What's your city going to look like in the next 10 years? Yeah, great question. So what, what, what I hope for my city is that you know, we continue to cement our status as the, uh, not only the center of 
the southern part of Massachusetts, but one of the leading cities in the Northeast that has a more diversified economy. That is a place that people are moving into because the school system is, has, has gotten a lot better and is doing right by, by children. And is a place that is competitive and continues to be competitive in maritime industries because that's our bread and butter. We've, it's our, our port is the reason why New Bedford exists and why it will continue to exist in the years ahead. That will be a leader not only in fishing but in offshore wind, which is the next big industry for us. It's all coming to the United States in the years ahead. Uh, and that we have uh, a more knowledge-based economy, that you know, we're one of these places in the Northeast that doesn't have much of a tech sector, but we're starting to develop the seeds of one now. And where we hope is that um, we're banking on the idea that technology companies can, can uh, take root anywhere. It doesn't have to be in East Cambridge or in Palo Alto. It can be in places like New Bedford that, that offer that are a place where ideas can be freely exchanged and where people can have a high quality of life and, and grow their business. So that's, that's the idea for us. Um, and um, you know, I think we're making progress in that direction. And because we don't know how this is all going to be edited, I will ask... And about 2018 and 2020, um, you are a Democratic mayor of a working-class city. You have a Harvard degree, but you worked your way through school in the factories and the warehouses. How does a Democrat connect with working-class voters? It's a big question being asked in Washington these days. Yeah, I think we – so I think mayors, Democratic mayors have a pretty good handle on that because uh, – and I include myself in this mix because, you know, we don't have – the luxury of, of being uh, ideological, um, or at least overtly ideological, and we don't have the uh, the luxury of, of being partisan. We have to get stuff done. And so the way I look at it is if pe- people want the same things, regardless of their political stripe, they, they, they really, as mundane as it might sound, they want their streets plowed. They want, they, they, they want their kids to go to a good school. They want their block to be safe. And Democrat or Republican, if you're delivering on that, people will you will gain the, the respect and the goodwill of uh, of, of folks. Um, that's the way I, I approach it, which is decidedly nonpartisan. It's more executive, and I think that's what's attractive to me about uh, about my job. And I suspect it's true of a lot of other mayors around the country. Uh, people are demanding results, and and uh, as mayor, you're you're in a position to, to do that if that's if that's truly your focus. All right. John Mitchell, the mayor of New Bedford, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thank Thank you, you. Mayor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.